This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two Defense Department veterans are nominees for top Pentagon jobs tonight. Christine Wormuth is President Biden's choice to become Secretary of the Army. She served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the Obama administration. She was on President Biden's transition team at DOD. Susanna Bloom is the administration's choice to become Director of Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation at the Pentagon. She's been acting director since January. Bloom was at the Center for a New American Security before she joined the administration. She served in several DOD jobs before she went to CNAS. The administration has a choice for its top cyber job. The Senate will consider Chris Inglis to become the first ever national cyber director. Inglis was deputy director of the National Security Agency from 2006 to 2014. He retired from the Air Force and Air National Guard in 2006 after a 40-year career. A new survey of federal employees is coming from the Office of Personnel Management. The Federal Workforce Competency Initiative will collect data OPM will use for job design, recruitment, performance management, and training. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert tracking the new OPM work. Mika, welcome. It's good to see you again. What is OPM doing, surveying, collecting now, and how will what this effort uh, they're undertaking be different? Well, thanks for having me, Francis, as always. You know, it's interesting. This comes on the heels about two weeks after GAO's high-risk list was published. And so for the 20th year consecutively in a row, um, human capital management has made the list. So it's interesting that this is the right time for OPM to start modernizing their competency database, along with, obviously, help from federal agencies. So this survey will go out for about three weeks. It will be administered initially to about 350 different occupations. And the survey is going to start assessing what they call general competencies, which are a lot different than your technical competencies. Technical competencies being, you know, the technical skills that are needed for your job, what you're assessed by in your performance appraisals, and how you determine as a supervisor who gets access to what kinds of training when you're thinking about career development. General competencies are, are your more, um, well, general competencies that you would want to hire in terms of critical uh, thinking skills, problem solving, communication, those kinds of competencies. So the survey will begin initially with those general competencies. And our hope is that this will really provide a data-based approach across the government. I mean, OPM has been doing this for about two decades now. Some of these competency models have been in play for a very long time, but haven't been updated and sometimes upwards of a decade or more. So it's an opportunity to refresh them, update them, get a sense across government what people are actually working on. And if you consider what's being automated and what's not, this is gonna be critically important to really get a sense for how we can modernize our assessments in terms of the job design and fit at the front end when you're figuring out who to hire. 
It sounds like the major differentiator to me is addressing, as you said, the GAO high-risk list has had strategic human capital management on it since the beginning of time, it seems. And the strategic part is what it sounds like OPM is trying to address here. Does that make sense to you, Mika? Yeah, absolutely. The The challenge is going to be, you know, some of these frameworks have been a lot around, as I mentioned, for a long time. There's been workbooks, you know, cheat sheets, fact sheets, and all of these tools to help enable hiring managers, supervisors, and federal HR practitioners to do this right for many, many years. I think they also need to tackle the culture piece. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if they could potentially modernize the data that they collect through the survey and make it more usable for the people who need to. For instance, like what they did with Unlocking Talent and the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey data dashboards and best practices and having one central repository that's web-based for people to use rather than you know PDF forms and worksheets that you have to download and that might not really translate to usability um, when you're talking about what you intend it for. How can they make that data usable, Mika? What makes it useful to a practitioner and in an indiv individual agency? Well, my goodness. I mean, if you've ever taken a peek at what already exists on the Mosaic and OPM competency website, I mean, there are thousands of different competencies. And, you know, some of them have been formatted really nicely where you can look alphabetically in terms of, you know, um, entomology or, uh, you know, you name it, the competency is there. But it's how do you crosswalk and level and then lift and plug and play into certain templates to make it quicker, faster, more agile and applicable to your work every day. Can you cut and paste them in, or maybe even upload them automatically into your performance appraisal system? Are you able to map them on your individual development plans when you're considering training for your staff? So it's, again, considering how you can make maybe a, a more universal web-based, easy to use platform rather than stagnant files that need to be updated this way you know, every five or 10 years. You said there are a couple thousand of these things. Is that part of the problem that there's there, we've kind of split the hairs too finely? You know, I think it would be interesting to really benchmark what some of the newer organizations have been doing in terms of reducing the noise around all the options that are there. I think you're spot on. So for instance, you know, consider what Space Force have just re recently done. They had to create new positions, new competencies, new assessment tools, and all of those things, these positions didn't even exist before. And if you're considering how this applies to the modernization of work and the kinds of even general competencies that you're looking for in this hybrid remote work environment that we've been all operating in over the past year, what do those new kinds of competencies, supervisory skills, and those sorts of things need to look like when you translate them into you know, staffing for a new position or even developing those competencies and grooming them even more when you're considering uh, leadership development. Mika Cross, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thank you so much, Francis. You can read more about the uh, new OPM survey at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, a new leader for the General Services Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what to watch for all three branches of the GSA tree. I'm back in two minutes.
Robin Carnahan is the new nominee for Administrator of the General Services Administration. If the Senate confirms her, she'll lead all of the agency's acquisition priorities. Larry Allen's president of Allen Federal Business Partners writing about GSA priorities in his Week Ahead newsletter. Larry, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. It's a benefit here, isn't there, uh, that Robin has been inside GSA. You're listing three challenges facing that administrator. The first you write about is coordinating GSA's technology and service portfolio. What's the potential challenge there? Francis, the potential challenge there is both of these portfolios are now growing substantially and you want to keep that growth going there are two challenges inside of that one is how do you make sure that the follow-on contracts the follow-on programs that are popular with your customers today remain popular uh, when you put them in place new programs do not automatically spur loyalty so you want to make sure that whatever you're putting in place to build on your success in fact does just that it builds on your success and the second part is that you want to make sure that everybody inside gsa understands that they're all pulling on the same oars everybody's going in the same direction uh, anytime you get two really competitive groups there may be a tendency for one to try to outdo the other and so one of the things that robin carnahan is going to have to do is to remind everybody Hey, we all wear GSA shirts. We're all working to serve our custom, uh, common customer. Let's make sure that we do it in such a way where we're all on the same team. The second item that you write about, Larry, is you put it this way, managing all of GSA's seemingly competing acquisition methods. Maybe sorting out some of that competition uh, is a noble goal for the next GSA administrator. Well, I think it's gonna be a big challenge, Francis. GSA inside the Federal Acquisition Service has the multiple award schedules program. It has GWAC programs. It has some separate uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. It also has uh, a requisition channel that it uses to meet a lot of internal agency needs. Uh, and now it has the GSA marketplace program, the pilot that Congress mandated it set up uh, for low dollar commercial item buys. Each of these programs have their uh, place in government acquisition. Each of them have their proponents inside GSA, but each of them also have people inside GSA who aren't so sure that the program over here isn't really gonna try to eat up their program over there. And that can lead to some tension inside the agency, some competition for resources and you know, really, uh, I can do it better than they can. What do we need this program for anyway? So another challenge that Robin is gonna have is making sure that each of these programs meet the swim lanes that they are designed to meet, that they meet them well, that they're adequately resourced, and that they're serving the constituents they're supposed to conserve. And if any of them aren't meeting their needs, then they either need to be fine-tuned, readdressed, or reconsidered. I appreciate the symmetry of your list, Larry, because you chose one, basically you chose one for the policy shop, you chose one for FAST, and you chose one for PBS, the three major pieces of GSA. And the one that you chose for PBS is dealing with expiring commercial leases and a downsizing federal office footprint. Is that more the purvey of the PBS commissioner, whoever that person is? 
Well, it certainly is going to be the line level uh, purview of the PBS Commissioner Francis, but inevitably the administrator of GSA spends most of lately her time working on public building service matters. The public building service portfolio inside GSA is so much larger than the acquisition portfolio, and it's arguably even higher profile because it's dealing with commercial real estate, federal real estate that are in many different states, many different congressional districts. So it gets the attention of Congress. No GSA administrator can survive a tenure uh, at the agency without uh, satisfactorily addressing public building service issues. And with all of the leases set to expire, and they're currently expiring now, uh, Robin Carnahan's got to have a lot to manage and a lot to oversee, and it's going to be coming at a very unpredictable time. When you have uh, federal workforces that have been working remotely, now some of them are going to uh, start to come back in and work in person. But how many are going to do that? And how often are they going to be in an office? Uh, and then what's the physical construct of that office environment going to look like? Francis, for the next little while, this type of public building service management and lease management is going to look a little bit like rocket science. Uh, you uh, and others have suggested that political appointees should choose three things at most to try to move during their tenures. I'll take these three things as the things that Robin Carnahan that you recommend that she would take on. What shouldn't she prioritize? What are things that she can leave aside or leave to others? Well, Francis, I think given Robin's uh, background, she did state and local government IT work at 18F, GSA's innovative acquisition arm when she was in the agency the last time around. She's just coming from Georgetown University where she's led as software initiative for state and local government common acquisition. I think there's gonna be a tendency to try to harmonize from the GSA point of view, federal, state, and local government technology acquisition. I would urge Robin to resist that temptation. My history, my experience in this has shown me that anytime GSA shows up with an innovative acquisition solution for a state and local government agency, those state and local governments tend to look very suspiciously at their federal brethren, and they're kind of uh, very hesitant to take on a recommendation from a federal agency head. It probably was one thing, Francis, for a Georgetown University academician to put forth a recommendation on state and local software use. It's gonna be something entirely different the head of a federal agency, uh, even though the message technically may be much the same. Uh, my recommendation to Robin is you're going to have plenty of other things to do. You don't need to worry about uh, state and local government uh, using GSA tools. They already do it to a certain extent. And if you try to press it too much, I think you're going to run into a fairly hard wall in a lot of different places. Uh, you can expend those same resources in other places inside the agency and actually get some definitive progress. Larry Allen, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Larry's newsletter at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, what's old is new again. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a 70-year-old model could stop waste, fraud, and abuse in pandemic relief. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. A 70-year-old model may be a solution to potential waste, fraud, and abuse in recovery from the pandemic. That lesson from history could apply to a number of the problems the federal government will face in the next decade. Harlan Ullman is chair at the Killowin Group. He's writing about a national infrastructure fund for UPI. Harlan, welcome. It's good to see you again. You cite President Eisenhower as an example in this piece. What in his approach seems appropriate to where we are today? There are two aspects of this. First, when he became president in March after 1953, after Stalin's death, he initiated Project Solarium, which was a major top-to-bottom review of American strategy, which ended up with the Eisenhower strategy of, um, of strategic deterrence. Uh, but also, Eisenhower's view was that if you have a tough problem, expand it. And we have a tough problem in the United States, which goes beyond our infrastructure. Uh, we are really still a 20th century industrial-based country trying to deal with a 21st century information age country. And so the only way to do it in my mind is through what I call for a national investment fund. The current plan that President Biden is proposing, the American Jobs Plan, has already been highly criticized for a number of reasons due to tax increases and increasing the deficit. But the real issues are twofold. First. We have a debate on Capitol Hill on what constitutes infrastructure. It seems to me this is like the Salem witch trials, trying to determine which, uh, which people are guilty of witchcraft and which people are not. But more importantly, there is no means to oversee, administer, and execute the plan. We're looking to spend trillions of dollars, and I think the administration has to put forward a strategy for how they're going to administer, execute, and oversee this so we don't have waste, fraud, and abuse. Now, my plan uh, for a national investment fund uh, tries to resolve these issues by separating infrastructure from larger investment. And the way I would do this would have the government put up a trillion dollars, basically for what we know as traditional infrastructure, and then through 30-year bonds that would pay 2 to 3% over prime, raise another trillion dollars from the private sector for a public-private partnership, which would invest in a lot of things that are not considered to be traditional infrastructure, such as housing, such as internet, uh, such as all sorts of other industrial needs in terms of materials and high technologies. And the government would uh, underwrite this and at least guarantee the loans, and they'd be paid off by virtue of tolls, user fees, and more importantly, by getting investment back in some of these companies in which we're going to invest. During the Troubled, Asse Troubled Asset Relief uh, Program in 2008 following that crisis, in which about $800 billion was turned back to the private sector and the banking industries, the government took a position with convertible debt. That is, they took a position in each of these companies. And as the, as the, profits, as the profits increased, uh, the, comp the government was able to realize huge profits up to of $40 or $50 billion uh, from the convertible debt. So we can do that. For example, the president wants to have $400 billion in housing and, and care issues. Well, if that's the case, why don't you allow people who are going to benefit from the housing from paying rent and someday even buying uh, the facilities in which they're living? So there are all sorts of imaginative ways that we can put together a national investment fund. And I would name it the 1923 fund because in 1923, following the 1918-1920 pandemic, mm. the United States entered into the greatest economic boom in its history. Yep. Of course, it ended it with the crash in 1929. But that was empowered by electrification automobiles. 5G broadband advanced technologies are going to empower this revolution. And I think the best way to do it is through a national infrastructure and investment plan. But it's got to be private and public because I'm afraid that the current plan that the president put forward may not 
be able to survive the political obstacles that it faces. Harlan, we just have a couple of minutes left already. You have great ideas. Um, the bond structure that you're proposing, there's a suspicion on one side of the public piece of that partnership. There's a suspicion on the other side of the private piece of that partnership. Would that bond structure insulate each side from its suspicions? Of course. And you'd have to have a really good oversee board that would have both civilians as well as some members of the government, such as cabinet secretaries. And oversight is absolutely critical. We don't want to go through the Solander uh, scandals in which we put half a billion dollars in a company to make solar panels that didn't work and it's got to be done through the private sector because quite frankly the government is not really good at making money but this can be accommodated and if you divide up that the government will take the traditional infrastructure and this public private fund will take the non-traditional issues in terms of advanced technologies this can work we have to find a proponent because as i said the current plan that the biden administration has put forward has a tragic flaw potentially Where's the oversight? Who's going to administer this? And who's going to make sure we get value for money spent? Harlan, we have about 30 seconds left. What would you watch as these plans uh, unfold in Congress? How they come unglued. Uh, we are polarized. Uh, the Republicans are going to take this on in terms of what is infrastructure. We're going to make all sorts of claims. And the, and the administration has got to put forward a plan to show why this makes sense and how they're going to oversight it. Unless they do that, I think that this thing could easily be debtor and arrival, or at least it can be done in a form that will not be sufficient to cope with our national needs. Harlan, thanks very much as always. You can find a link to Harlan's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. And you get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, ACT IAX, Acquisition Innovation 2021, is coming. You'll learn firsthand how government and industry are working together to build adaptability, resilience, speed, and repeatability into the acquisition process. It's happening next Tuesday, April 20th, virtually from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies 
to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network uh, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies 
and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.